Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good afternoon, good early evening. It is Sunday, January the 7th, 2024. It is currently 5.30 p.m. Central Time, and I am coming to you live from the Theology Central studio located right here in Abilene, Texas. I hope you've had a great Sunday. I hope you've listened to maybe more than one sermon. Hopefully you had a good Sunday school class. If you got to go, hopefully you've learned something. You've been challenged. Hopefully it's been uplifting and beneficial. Hopefully, well, hopefully you're ready for maybe something a little different because this may not be what you got this morning in Sunday school. This may not be what you got for your morning sermon. This is going to be a little bit more, well, I hate to say controversial, but it's going to be controversial because we're dealing with a a, a big controversy in the world of Christianity, in the body of Christ. Whether we like it or not, the body of Christ is so divided, so much disunity, because we don't agree on anything. And sadly, here we don't agree in how to interpret a passage that I would somewhat argue seems to me painfully obvious, right? There are certain things within the body of Christ. There are certain things within the body of Christ that I kind of go, well, you know, I understand why we disagree on that. Like, I can possibly see. That's a difficult. That, how to interpret a certain maybe passage or, or okay, I can see the difficulty. And there, there's some things you just kind of look at and like, what's the controversy? What's the difficulty? That Like, it's, it seems painfully obvious. But as I think it's painfully obvious, others would be like, what are you talking about? It's not near. It's not near obvious. It's not even close to obvious. But I think at times things are much more obvious than we want to acknowledge, but we still have the controversy. So here's what I'm going to challenge us on, okay? Here in a minute, I'm going to open my Bible, and I'm going to read some verses from a very well-known section of Scripture. I believe the words are relatively obvious, and I don't think it requires much jumping through hoops. But I think the reason there's so much controversy, I need you to listen to me. Okay, I need you to listen to me. I know some of you are going to disagree with me, but I believe the reason there's so much controversy is because everyone brings their theology to the text. Instead of taking the text to their theology, they bring their theology to the text, and there is a radical difference. See, if you've already got a certain theological understanding, say about salvation, you've got a a certain theological understanding about it, what it does, how it works, uh, proof of it, etc., etc. Well, if you come to a passage of scripture that seems to call into contradiction or, or disagrees with your theology, then what we typically do is reinterpret the passage to agree with our theology. So therefore, we're bringing our theology to the text, and because we've got to make it fit our theology, we reinterpret it. Now, people will say, no, I did not do that. No, it was after extensive study of the Bible. But a lot of times when you put, when you really push people to it, go, show me your extensive exegetical notes. Show me where you did this kind of Bible study method, or you did this. Or you, they literally, in many cases, don't have anything to show for it. What they show you is that they read some commentaries that agree with their theological position that offered an interpretation of the text. 
Well, you brought your theology to the text. So you read the text, you're like, oh, I don't know what we do with that. Wait, what? Hey, hey, what does MacArthur say? What does R.C. Sproul or, or James Montgomery Boyce or whoever is in your, like, that's more maybe the reform world or whoever you're looking for. You look for the people who already agree with your theology, and then you interpret it based off your theology. That is, that is a horrible way to do so. What you should do is you come to the text, and you know what you do at that very moment? Anytime you open your Bible, anytime you open your Bible and you look at a text, anytime you open your Bible and look at a text, you know what? At that moment, you don't have a theology. At that moment, you don't have a theological system. At that moment, you don't have a team. At that moment, you're not a Baptist. You're not Reformed. You're not not Reformed. You're nothing. You are an individual opening up the Bible, looking at God's Word, saying, what does this mean by what it says? And it may agree. It may disagree. It may blow your theological system out of the water. It may burn it completely to the ground, or it may strengthen it. It may build it up. It may even make it stronger but you've got to forget your theological system. And over and over and over, we come to a text and we're like, here's what I believe. The text is going to agree with what I believe. Now, the game is we all pretend that we don't do that. So we go, no, 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 no. I'm just studying the Bible. That's all I'm doing. You're, <laughs> you're proof texting the Bible based off your the- theology. In other words, what you're doing is you have your system And then every text becomes a proof text for your theology or for your system. And that is wrong. That is just inherently wrong. So if you know people's theological system, like you can look, I'm telling you, this is the way it works. You know, someone's like before, like we're going to study the Bible, right? Let's say someone wanted to study the Bible with me. I would first just ask questions about their theological system. Once I identified their theological system, then I know exactly how they're going to interpret the text. They're going to interpret the text like their team interprets it, right? Oh, you're reformed. Your covenant theology. Well, I know how you're, you're an all millennialist. I know how you're going to interpret these passages. Oh, you're dispensational. You're pre mill. I know how you're going to interpret. Oh, you're Calvinist. Oh, you're, you're an, uh, you're, um, Arminian. You're, you're Pelagian or semi-Pelagian. If I get this theological system, I know how you're going to interpret the text because you've got to interpret the text in line with your team. And and we never stop to go, how utterly foolish is this? Your team doesn't matter. The text is what we, we run around saying, we are not Catholics. We do not have a magisterium. We, it's the scripture. The scripture is the authority. The scripture is the word of God. And yet we bring our theology and our theology serves as our magisterial authority. And it tells us this is how you interpret the text. Why? Because our magisterium of our you know, supposed leaders and our theological circles, whether you're in the MacArthur camp or the R.C. Sproul camp or the James Montgomery Boys camp, or, or you just named the church, you named the camp, that's our camp. And then imagine everyone in that camp interprets the passage the exact same way. It's like, oh, I'm so shocked. And so many times when you start having an argument with people, just listen to them. They, you listen to them and they're quoting a commentary. They're literally citing the evidence that they took from someone's book, someone's commentary, someone's sermon. And you're like, look, I can go look up the same thing. 
I don't need you to recite to me what MacArthur said. I don't need you to recite to me what MacArthur said in the gospel according to Jesus or just whomever. You just name the people. And we all do that. Stop bringing your theology to the text. Take your text to your theology. And sometimes you know what the text does to your theology? It slaps it in the face. The text is not, doesn't really care about your theological system. Your text doesn't really worry about it. And so what we should say is we study the Bible to find out what the Bible says. And we want the Bible to say what it says with or without offense to our theological system or our theological friends. I study the Bible to figure out what it means by what it says. And I want to know what the text says, and I'm going to study it. And it doesn't matter if the text offends my system or offends my theological friends. I would rather lose my theological friends. I would rather lose my theological team. But to try to pursue Scripture. And it's hard to get people to realize that's what they're doing. It's hard, hard. And, and, and people get offended with me because once I kind of know their theological system, then I'll be like, well, there's no point in discussing the Bible. Let's talk about the Bible. Well, there's nothing to talk about. You're going to see it and li- isn't it going to be amazing that you're going to see it just like everyone else does in your theological system. And I'm going to see it like everyone does in my theological system. So there really isn't any, all you need to do is say, here's my book. And I'm like, here's my book. And I'm like, okay, there, then there's no point in, in, in ag- d- discussing it, trying to get people to actually engage in Bible study. Like one of the things I try to do here, even in my preaching and my teaching, even in the podcast is to get people actually to the text, right? Bible study methods, asking questions. And I try to get people to actually participate with the Bible pop quiz. I'm trying to get people to participate. And you know how hard it is to get people to actually participate? I think you got a better chance of time travel. But to get Christians to say, I'm going to get a Bible, I'm going to get a notebook, and I'm actually going to participate. I'm going to do a topical method. I'm going to do a thematic method. I'm going to do a chapter analysis. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. Now, you will always have some who will, but the majority will look at you like, well, I'm just going to listen to a sermon that agrees with what I like. And if I and if I don't like, if I disagree with what you say, you're inherently wrong. You're just wrong. You're wrong. You're wrong. You're wrong. And you can say, oh, I'm wrong. Well, could please show me all of the exegetical work. They never come back with their work. They never. They never do. Why? Because their theology is what dominates. And I believe that problem that I just outlined for the last 11 minutes contributes to why there's no agreement on what I believe is a very simple passage. That passage is 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Now, how did we end up in 1 Corinthians chapter 3? Well, many of you know that we're currently involved in a very important challenge. The 2024 Sermons 2.0 app sermon challenge, where each day you pick up the Sermons 2.0 app, you pick a sermon completely at random, you listen to it, you write it in a notebook, the name of the sermon, the name of the church, the date, maybe the scripture. After you're done, you write like a one-sentence summary of what the sermon was about. If you take notes, you put the notes in the same notebook and you put the page number where your notes are found. And each day it's a new sermon, random. You don't pick anything. Sometimes I'll give you a topic to pick, but even then you're picking random sermons within that topic. 
right? Like tomorrow, you're going to have random sermons very much connected to one subject, all right? And we'll talk about that in just, well, well, you probably already know, but you're about to find out. But the passage of scripture, so what happened is I was listening to a sermon and in the sermon, he made a comment about something not existing. It does not exist. And that the apostle Paul was using sarcasm, but then later on, he seemed to act like it does exist. So we don't know if it exists, doesn't exist. It was really confusing, but I said, we're going to circle back to it. And here we are, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, everything that I'm referencing is found right here in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1. And I, that's the Apostle Paul, and I, brethren, that's the, that's the people at the church of Corinth. I, Paul, brethren, those of the church of Corinth, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. The Apostle Paul, is calling those he refers to as brothers, he refers to them as carnal. Another translation, if I can find my Bible. See, where is it? I'm going to grab a different Bible here. It's right here. It reads this way. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1. For my part, brothers and sisters, I was not able to speak to you as to to spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as babes in Christ. Now, he refers to them as brothers and sisters. He refers to them. These are people a part of the church of Corinth. And he's like, hey, I couldn't speak to you as spiritual. I had to speak to you as carnal, even as babes in Christ. Now, this makes then this reference of This is the phrase, carnal Christians. Carnal Christians. Now, some people's theology that they bring to the text is, there's no such thing as carnal Christians, so clearly 1 Corinthians 3 cannot be speaking of carnal Christians because they do not exist. So whatever Paul is doing, he doesn't mean that there's carnal Christians because there's no such thing. There cannot be carnal Christians because their view is when you become saved, right? You're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. However, that that even though you're saved by an imputed righteousness, not an infused righteousness, even though it's imputed, it better produce a change. And if it doesn't produce a change, you were never saved. And if you are a carnal Christian, then that means there wasn't enough change. Therefore, you were never saved. Now, no, no, no. And they'll still say, but you weren't saved by works. You're not saved by works. But, 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 even though you're not saved by works and even though you're saved by an imputed righteousness, it really equals an infused righteousness because it has to produce a change. And that change must reach a certain level because if you don't reach a certain level of change, you're never saved, meaning there has to be these things present in order for you to be saved, which sounds like you're saved by works, but they would say no. So their theology would say there cannot be carnal Christians because that would then go against the idea that there has to be change and therefore these people can't be saved. Even though Paul refers to them as babes in Christ. But but they're not carnal Christians. In fact, the sermon that we listened to said that Paul was being sarcastic. Hey, hey, I couldn't talk to you as Christians. I mean, I had to talk to you like carnal Christians. Wink, wink. Obviously, I can't talk to you as carnal Christians because... 
There's no such thing. Now, the fact that he would be saying something sarcastically and referring to them as something that doesn't exist, really, I don't know what would be the power of the sarcasm. Hey, you're acting like something that doesn't exist. Well, they would be like, well, Paul, we can't be acting like that because it doesn't exist. (laughs) So I don't know. But okay. So this brings up this never-ending debate about carnal Christians. So we're going to consider a little bit about this debate. I've gone to multiple schools, as many of you know, Bible institutes, Bible college, seminaries, and all of my educational pursuits over all of these years. I've gone to schools that believe in carnal Christians, and I've gone to schools that adamantly claim there is no such creature. You're, it's, you're more likely to go to West Texas and find a chupacabra than you are to find a carnal Christian. You're more likely to, to be walking through the woods and see Bigfoot. You may find the Loch Ness Monster before you find a carnal Christian because they do not exist. There is no such thing. So therefore, you can be a Christian. You just can never reach the level of carnality because that's, that can't be. You can be carnal-like, you just cannot be carnal. You can be sinful, you just cannot be sinful. It's it's almost there's a level of these things you can be. And it becomes a little, what, confusing. But we will see here in a minute. Let's, Let's consider some basic information here. Let's consider some basic information about this never-ending controversy. You ready? I'm good. I'm going to I'm going to assume someone said amen. Here we go. The concept of carnal Christians is mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We just only read verse 1. That's all we've read so far, but I mean it mentions right there. You know, I could not speak to you as spiritual but as unto carnal, as even as unto babes in Christ. This passage, 1 Corinthians 3, has sparked debates and discussions among theologians and scholars throughout history. Now, I'm going to say your theology or your soteriology, what you believe about salvation, typically becomes the determining factor in how you interpret the text, which to me is problematic. You're bringing theology to the text when you should start with the text without any consideration of your theology and then bring it to your theology, and the two may find themselves in a very unhappy disagreement. Here are some of the historical perspectives on the debate about carnal Christians. Number one, let's look at some historical interpretations. Let's start with the early church fathers. According to one source, Some early church fathers, such as Origen and Augustine, emphasize the distinction between carnal and spiritual Christians. They understood the term carnal to refer to those who were immature in their faith and still driven by worldly desires. These individuals were seen as lacking spiritual maturity and were in need of growth. So so some of the early church fathers, notably Origen and Augustine, according to one source, now we would have to do a lot of work tracking these things down within the early church fathers' writings. And always know that with the early church fathers, you can read one paragraph and five minutes later read another paragraph and you're sometimes 
going, I am so confused here, but all right, let's just go with this theory that they saw that there was a distinction. When they heard carnal Christian, in their mind, there was a distinction between a carnal Christian and a spiritual Christian because a carnal Christian is, well, immature. They lack maturity. They just lie. They, they're still driven more by the flesh than they are by the spirit. Their, their, their priorities and their desires are more fleshly than spiritual. And I would say, if you've not looked at any church, look at yourself. How many times in your own Christian life, you're more motivated and driven by fleshly considerations than you are spiritual? That shows up. You can talk all big and bad and you can, you can claim whatever you want. The reality is when everything is said and done and you turn off all the posing and all of the pretending and all of the fig leaf and and self-righteousness and you remove all of that, you get down to it. You and me, we all know over and over and over, we are driven by physical, fleshly pursuits and desires and priorities versus spiritual. We put things before the reading of God's word. We put things before the memorizing of God's word. We put things before going to church. We constantly do that. And so they're just like, hey, carnal is, 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 well, it's spiritual immaturity. Now, I think that somehow stays consistent with the text. Let me read. And I, brethren, cannot speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. I have fed you with milk and not with meat, for hitherto you were not able to bear it, neither are you yet now able to, uh, able for our, for ye, for ye are yet carnal, for whereas there is among you envy and strife, division, are you not carnal and walk as men? That sounds like he's like, you're spiritually immature. You're a bunch of babies in Christ. Therefore, I can't give you a, I can't give you meat. I got to keep giving you milk. And then if you want to know how carnal you are, he begins to outline the examples of their carnality, which to me means he's literally calling them carnal and he's proving that he's carnal. He's not using sarcasm, as we heard in a sermon that still to this day makes absolutely no sense what the pastor was attempting to say in said sermon. But the early church fathers seemed to draw a distinction between a spiritually immature Christian and a spiritually mature. And the spiritually immature is still driven by the flesh. They're carnal. They, pers- they pursue worldly, fleshly things above the spiritual. And that level of immaturity and carnality shows up in all of our lives over and over and over and over and over again. That was the early church interpretation. Now let's jump to the Reformation. This one baffles me a little bit. But I'm going to read it. But, okay, let me, okay, let me state this. I think the second one is going to demonstrate something. I have stated this now countless times on this podcast. I am not beholden to are bound by anyone's team. And as a result of that, it's caused me nothing but problems my whole Christian life. Look, I don't care who I offend. If I offend Reformed people, I don't really care. I don't care. Reformed people get mad? So what? I'm not bound by your Reformed magisterial authority. You don't have any authority over me. And if I offend the non-Reformed, I don't care. I'm not bound by your team. And now the fact that I don't care about the teams and I don't care who I offend on the teams, then that sometimes sets me in Christian no man's land. 
I end up in no man's land because, well, I'm reformed, but I'm not reformed enough. I'm this, but I'm not this. I'm this. And everybody sometimes wants me to go, well, I will. so could you explain to me? Because it's not lining up. It's not lining up with your team. I don't care about your team. See, you sent me your jersey and I threw it in the trash because I don't care about wearing your jersey. See, I care about figuring out the text. And what I've learned is the text has major problems with most teams because teams are more committed to the team than they are to the text. And this next one is a good example. I'm very much in line with Reformation theology. But this gets a little confusing to me. The early church, I kind of, I'm kind of, if Augustine and Origen went with that direction, then I'm kind of, in, I am in agreement with them. Carnal Christian is an immature Christian. End of story. I don't know why it's complicated. The text screams that in 1 Corinthians. Hey, you're babes in Christ. You're carnal. You're a babe in Christ. You can't even get spiritual meat. You have to get spiritual milk. How are you carnal? And it goes out and outline all the ways in which they're carnal, which are all signs of immaturity. To me, that's that's simple, straightforward reading of the text. But we had we because we moved away from the early church, we ended up in the Reformation. This is according to one, sir, one source. Reformation period. During the Protestant Reformation, theologians like Martin Luther and John Calvin had different views on the issue of carnal Christians. Luther emphasized the doctrine of justification by faith alone and believed that true faith would inevitably produce good works. He viewed the concept of carnal Christians as contradictory, arguing that genuine faith would lead to a transformed life. Now, once again, I get confused here because Luther was constantly the one promoting the idea that we are saved by an imputed righteousness. See, an infused righteousness would produce change. Imputed righteousness declares me to be something that I'm not actually in practice. In practice, I'm still a sinner. But see, we always want this. There's going to be transformation. There's going to be change. It's going to be dramatic. Well, it is a dramatic change positionally. Positionally, I'm a new creature in Christ. The old is gone. Everything is new. Practically, that's not true. You know why? Because if I was a new creature and the old was completely gone and everything was new, then I wouldn't have a sinful nature and therefore I could be sinlessly, I could be sinless. I could reach sinless perfection, but I know I can't. Therefore, the old is still there, meaning not everything has become new and the old isn't gone. But it is true positionally where the old is gone and everything is new. Positionally, because of imputed righteousness. But in practical everyday living, the sinful nature is still there and I fall short and I fall short and I fall short and I fall short and I fall short. And I cannot look to transformation to prove the genuineness of my faith because my faith is not proved genuine by what I do. The genuineness of my faith is proved by the genuineness of the obedience and righteousness of Christ, which is is imputed to my account by faith alone. That's the whole Reformation. And I've said sometimes when you read Luther, he seems to contradict the very doctrine of justification that he put forth. In fact, to me, in many cases, he reverts back to his Roman Catholicism. And he, and he very much does. Remember, I was Lutheran. I wanted to be a Lutheran pastor. 
What was I taught? Eight days old, you take a baby, you sprinkle water on its forehead. In the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit, boom, magic Christian. Welcome everyone, your new brother or sister in the Lord that would hold up the baby. Hey, it's a new Christian. Yay, water, the word of God with the water produces a baby. It regenerates the baby. Okay. That's baptismal regeneration. All right. Okay. I, I don't even know how that's even consistent with a doctrine of ju- justification by faith alone through grace alone. Okay. But that's okay. Okay. So the baby is saved. Well, then I, I worked with teenagers in the Lutheran church. And I remember asking my pastor, I think something is wrong with the water in this church because these teenagers literally don't care. They don't care about anything about God. They hate everything about God. They're not interested. They will just straight up tell you, I don't care about any of this stuff, but I have to be here because my parents are telling me to be here. And then you're like, what's wrong? And like, well, you know, you can lose your salvation. Wait, 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 wait. I thought we're saved by grace alone through faith alone because of Christ alone. And I thought baptism was was a uh, a sacrament that regenerated, but you can lose the regeneration. Then the baptismal regeneration is not even a guarantee. And that was Missouri Synod Lutheran Church. And I'm like, something is wrong. Well, why? Why did they have to say you could lose it? Because they knew that the baptism, they say, that regenerates, that should produce this magic change. Well, how many babies were baptized in a Lutheran church that grow up and they don't even believe in God? (laughs) See, their theology begins to drive their interpretation of these things. So they can't believe in carnal Christians because, well, they, they gotta, they gotta get, they gotta throw people out of the kingdom because, well, this is gonna cause problems with their entire sacramental system. So I, I disagree completely with what Luther says there. Calvin, on the other hand, acknowledged the presence of both genuine believers and those who profess faith but do not demonstrate it in their lives. He saw the existence of carnal Christians as a reflection of human nature's ongoing struggle with sinful desires. Well, once again, I agree with Calvin there. Yes, I'm saved by an imputed righteousness, not an infused righteousness. And guess what I still possess from the moment of salvation all the way to the point of glorification, a sinful nature. And that sinful nature will manifest itself over and over and over and over and over again that I may be saved for 15 years, but act like I've been saved for six months and act like a spiritual baby. And over and over and over, sinfulness and carnality will manifest itself in my life, in my thinking, in my words, in my desires, in my pursuits. So the Reformation period, there seems to be some form of a disagreement between the two. Now, contemporary perspectives. and modern times, different interpretations of carnal Christians continue to exist. Some view the ter- term carnal as referring to believers who, though saved, are characterized by a continued pattern of living in a worldly way. They argue that such individuals may still possess genuine faith, but have not yet fully surrendered every area of their life to Christ's lordship. Others reject the concept of carnal Christians altogether, suggesting that it is contradictory and incompatible with the biblical teaching of salvation by grace through faith. Though they they argue that a person is either genuinely born again or not. And how do you know if you're genuinely born again? By what you do. No, I know I'm genuinely born again because I put my faith in Christ and I am saved by an imputed righteousness. To me, so many times, evangelicals and contemporary Christians revert back to an infused righteous concept that comes straight from Roman Catholicism. 
And yet they will condemn Roman Catholicism where they're borrowing the infused righteousness concept. I am saved by faith. That is an imputed righteousness. It does not make me righteous. It declares me to be that which I am not. Therefore, I am a saint positionally, but I'm a sinner practically. And that sin manifests itself in the church. And that has been exactly what we've seen for 2000 years where churches are filled with Christians and their the Christian families have the same problems non-Christian families have. You have struggles with pornography. You have struggles with yelling, screaming, fighting, division, depression, discouragement, all of the issues. And, and the church is filled with, with premarital sex, adultery, fighting, divorce, all the same issues. Church splits, d- church divisions, fighting, because we all have sinful natures. And carnality manifests itself in your life and my life. Carnality may have already manifested itself in your life today. You may have already been in a fight with your spouse. You may have already thought horrible thoughts. You may have been in a fight with your kids. You may be frustrated. You may be irritated. You may be unforgiving. You may be bitter. And if you're not today, there's a high probability it'll show up before the week is out. This source doesn't leave us with a lot of answers, says, ultimately, the interpretation of carnal Christians continues to be a topic of debate and theological discussion. Discussion. Various viewpoints emphasize different aspects such as spiritual maturity, the role of works, and the ongoing struggle with sin. It is important to approach these discussions with an open mind and a reverence for Scripture to gain deeper understanding of this complex issue. Hey, it's, it's very complex. Now, I'm just going to read the text itself. And I'm going to just point out what I think are textual clues that seem to lead us to what I think is a relatively obvious understanding of it. Now, I am painfully aware that there are those who strongly disagree. Right here in front of me, I have a commentary, 1 Corinthians a study of the spiritual and material conflict of today. And this is from the Family Radio School of the Bible in which I was a student. And this commentary teaches against the existence of carnal Christians. In fact, I had to write a paper for that school arguing against the existence of carnal Christians. If you you are in the Lordship camp, the MacArthur camp, you do not believe in carnal Christians. Now, you then, if you hold a lordship, you have to then constantly convince yourself that you're not carnal, which typically requires you to put on a whole lot of fig leaves and a whole, a whole a number of robes of self-righteousness to convince yourself that you're really not what you are. You got to pretend that you are not what you are. You cover it up with external righteousness, but in reality, deep down, you're just as carnal as everyone else. But you won't admit that because that would destroy your lordship as salvation, and then you would have to acknowledge that you're not saved. But go ahead and pretend to be such a good, righteous person because so many in it weird that sometimes people are lordship can be the most condescending arrogant jerks and they can't see their own pride and their own arrogance and their own self-righteousness I'm like that right there should prove that you're not saved but no 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 they don't care about that they care about other issues it's everyone else's sin that proves that they're not saved their sin never proves that they're not saved because they always convince themselves they're passing the lordship test 
when in reality, if they're even remotely honest with themselves, at least internally, they're not. But hey, I digress. It must be good to be so perfect that you get heaven because of how good you are. And I say, no, I don't get heaven because how good I am. I prove I'm going to heaven by how good I am, meaning you've got to be that good in order to be saved. And therefore, somehow you become the standard. But if I put your life according to God's word, which is the standard, God's word demands perfection internally and externally, and it has to be perfect obedience, and it has to be perpetual, and you don't fulfill that. So therefore, you're in violation of God's law. But then say, well, it's not about perfect. It's about direction. So then you have to, they constantly keep grading on a curve that somehow they always pass and other people fail. The whole system in that sense becomes just absolutely a a never ending joke, in my opinion. But I'm going to grab this commentary and we're going to work through it a little bit. Now, I don't know if we're going to be able to finish this, but we're going to try to seek out its its basic hypotheses and see if we're if it's going to fall apart. But before we do that, I guess what we're going to do is we're going to work through 1 Corinthians 3. Maybe this is going to turn into a part two. I, I, I feel that it's going to turn into a part two. But maybe we'll get to the commentary. Maybe we will not. But let's just go through the text and see what we can find. All right? I'll just point out a number of things. First, Paul speaking, and I, there's the I, brethren, some trans Bibles, brothers and sisters, typically a term that you would use to refer to professing believers. Now, some will say, well, he's referring to fellow Jews. I think he, since he's writing to a specific church, I think he's referencing that these people are brothers and sisters in the Lord, that they are at least professing that. All right. And then what does he say? I cannot speak unto you as unto spiritual. Now, Paul's writing a church with a million problems. Now, I wonder, how is it possible that a church could have so many problems? I wonder how a church could be so sinful well, almost every church, if you'll just pull back the facade, pull back the fig leaves, take off the robes of self-righteousness, you'll see that all churches have a lot more carnality and sin in them than anyone wants to admit. So Paul's writing to a church that's got a million problems. Million is hyperbolic. A lot of problems. And he says, hey, guys, I can't speak unto you as spiritual. I can't write to this church as being spiritual, but as unto carnal. I'm going to write unto you as being a fleshly church, even as unto babes in Christ. Hey, and so therefore you get the idea. Hey, I gotta, I'm going to, I'm going to look at you as carnal, even as babes in Christ, meaning carnality and babes in Christ to me are somewhat related. And some are like, no, no, no. He's like, I'm going to write unto you as unto carnal. But I mean, you're not really carnal. Okay. Even as unto babes in Christ. No, I don't know how you separate it. Hey, I can't, I can't write to you as being spiritual. I'm going to write to you like your babies. I'm going to write unto you like you're fleshly because that's exactly what you've been. And he goes to prove how fleshly and immature they have been, which to me supports the idea that he's referring to them as carnal, but he's still referring to them as babes in Christ, meaning he's still, he's not questioning their salvation. He's questioning where they are in their salvation, I have fed you with milk and not with meat, for hitherto you were unable to bear it, neither yet now are you able. Hey, I have to keep giving you milk because you're a baby. I can't give you a full meal. You're a baby. You're spiritually immature. You are spiritually babes in Christ. You are carnal. Verse 3, for ye are yet carnal. He says it again. I'm going to show you you're carnal. In fact, how does, I'm going to read another translation. 
verse 3. Hang on, let me reach down and grab my Bible. I'm going to grab another translation. I always, my table has too many things on the table, and this Bible is huge, so I have to always throw it back down after I reference it. But here we go. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 3. All right, I say, so I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, since you were not ready for it. In fact, you're still not ready because you are still worldly. For since there is, and then he begins to explain how they're worldly. You're still worldly. You're still fleshly. You're still babes in Christ. Every single one of us struggles with, there is a part of us that is, is fleshly, is worldly. It is carnal. It is your sinful nature. You still possess that. And sometimes that sinful nature manifests itself far more than anything else. But look what he says. I'm going to go back to the King James. For ye are yet carnal. For whereas, now, now he's going to explain how, how are these people carnal? See, he's, he's literally, you can't say that he's saying that they don't exist. They don't exist. He's literally explaining to them how they are carnal. How? Wherein there is among you envying. There's envying. There's envy in the church. He doesn't go after homosexuality. He doesn't go after, you know, murder. He doesn't go after idolatry. Hey, there's envy. If there's envy in the church, that envy is a proof of your carnality and of your spiritual immaturity. And strife. You don't get along. There's fighting. And division. Are ye not carnal and walk as man? Look in this church. Look, he names three things. There's envy, strife, and division. You're fighting amongst one another. You can't even get along. How many churches where there's fighting and dispute and they would say, we don't believe in carnal Christians. You're literally showing your carnality. Listen to Christians fight one another, argue with one another, backstab, gossip, slander. They'll leave a church and still talk about the people in that church, still badmouth the pastor. But they'll be like, I believe in lordship. I believe in lordship. Yeah, and, and, and maybe you're, I don't know, you don't believe in carnal Christians, but you're literally doing the very actions that would label you a carnal Christian while you claim you don't believe in carnal Christian because you believe in lordship salvation, meaning you should then convince yourself that you're not saved. So instead of leaving a church, you probably should go back to the church you left and acknowledge that you're not even saved. See, it's it, when people say oh, there's no carnal Christians, and then when they name carnality, they'll name these really, really bad sins. That's carnal Christians. It names the very basic things: envy, division, and strife. And then how did this manifest? For while one saith, I'm of Paul, and another I'm of Paulus, are you not carnal? Hey, you're divided into your spiritual teams. You got your spiritual team captains. Who then is a Paul and who is Apollos, but ministers whom you believe even as the Lord gave to every man. And he says right here, he begins then to try to, uh, uh, he begins to argue against their carnality. Please what he does, guess what he does? He doesn't say, hey, 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 stop it. Those of you who are carnal, you're not saved. No, no, no. He's like, whoa, whoa, slow down, slow down. Don't you realize you're fighting over something that's ridiculous? Who is Paul? Who is Apollos? 
And then he goes, so he goes, so then neither he that planteth anything, neither he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. Instead of focusing on these team leaders and to being divided by your spiritual leaders, focus on God. He tries to correct their carnality, not by saying they're not saved, but by trying to help them rethink things through a correct way, which once again demonstrates. He, it's not like they're saying he's using sarcasm. Hey guys, you're acting like carnal Christians, but you know, they don't really exist. Well then, that, that makes no sense to me. The text seems to scream. In fact, he says it numerous times. Are you not yet carnal? Are you not carnal? Are you not carnal? Why? Because he's literally trying to show them that they are carnal by their very actions. To say that he's being sarcastic and, and carnal Christians don't exist, then it's really foolish for him to say, are you not acting like a carnal Christian? Are you not acting like someone who's carnal? He's showing them their carnality. There are carnal Christians. In fact, all Christians are carnal to some level. Why? We have a sinful nature and we constantly show our fleshliness, our worldliness, and our, our, our spiritual immaturity. Now, let me quickly go through the commentary that I have here to show you their argument around this. Here we go. Paul is writing to a mixed church. There were many believers in the congregation, but also some unbelievers who were causing trouble. So the big question arises. A big question arises. How can he address the whole congregation in the same letter? There is no alternative to addressing a church of any spiritual condition except in general as a group of worshipers, as a congregation. No one, even with the inside of Paul, can judge on an individual basis who is and who is not a Christian. Now, let me stop right here. Paul is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. God does know who is saved and not saved, unless you're now questioning Paul writing under the inspiration of... They're like, hey, look, this church is made up of believers and unbelievers. So some of these people are unbelievers. I mean, you can't expect Paul to do it in a different way because how would Paul know? Uh, He's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I'm pretty sure the Holy Spirit knows. (laughs) That's just such a weak argument. No one, even with the inside of Paul, can judge on an individual basis who is and who is not a Christian. Again, the Holy Spirit can. After all, every man being still encumbered with a sinful body is liable to make faulty judgments. They're saying Paul can make faulty judgments. Of course, but he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, right? Often a man does not have all the information. Besides this kind of judgment, it's God's role anyway. Paul just trusted the Holy Spirit to apply the specific truth to a specific listener. No, Paul was trusting that the words he was writing, are they not God-breathed? Like, this seems to call into question the inspiration of what Paul was writing. Hey, Paul was just going to write it out there, and he trusted that the Holy Spirit would do what he wanted to with it. No, it's the words inspired by the Holy Spirit, right? (laughs) I like, I love how they, to to try to get around this, they're going to downplay inspiration. No church has a membership of 100% believers. 
A minister's harsh words are a benefit to the believers in the congregation as they examine their own personal walk and at the same time a warning to the unbelievers who take heed and turn from their sin and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. In addition, the whole congregation is affected by the sins of any of its members. Believers who are in authority and those who who are not must be concerned for their spiritual welfare of all in the congregation and for the witness of the congregation as a whole. So you can already see their, 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 their presupposition is, hey, wait, 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 now guys, Paul's going to address some people here, but just remember, not everyone is a believer. So, hey, if he addresses someone and he uses words that make our theology uncomfortable, we'll just say those weren't believers because they don't pass the lordship test. <laughs> That's uh, convenient, isn't it? The general form of address is common in the Bible. We cannot assume the spiritual character of any particular individual by the nature of the statement made to the whole congregation. Elijah and Jeremiah said terrible things to Israel, but there was always some who were saved in that nation. In, uh, in Corinth, also the brethren, uh, also the brethren heard both the wonderful statements of 1 Corinthians and the awful statements. These statements are directed to a mixed congregation, some believers, some unbelievers. Only the Holy Spirit knows the heart of the particular individual and uses words spoken to the congregation as his will. So his whole point, their whole point here, they're setting up a, their basic presupposition is, hey, some of these people aren't believers. So when he describes them this way, those are unbelievers. Those are unbelievers. When he describes them this way, they are believers. Let's see how consistently this plays out. And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal. The statement is addressed to the whole congregation corporately. It is a theoretical statement. It is like a principle. True if the situation applies, but not every individual is like this. Okay. Hey, I can't speak unto you as uncarnal, but as spiritual. Hey, this is not for every individual. This is just a general principle. Okay. I'm, I got no major problem with this, but what are you going to do with this concept? Well, the word carnal. Now, they want us to look at the Greek word. They want us to look at the Greek word. All right. Let's look at it. The Greek word is, let me pull it up. Oh, we're going to run out of time. We're going to run out of time. Let's see if we can get close. Let's see if we can get close. Where is my Blue Letter Bible app? Here it is. Now let's go to 1 Corinthians. Let's go to chapter 3. Let's pull up verse 1. Let's open the antilinear. Let's go to unto carnal. And it's this Greek word. Are you ready? Here we go. Strong's G, 4559, Sarkikos. 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 Sarkikos is used 11 times, nine times fleshly, one times fleshly. Again, sarkikos, or nine times carnal, two times fleshly. Sarkikos, Strong's definition, pertaining to the flesh, uh, by extension, bodily, temporal, by implication, animal, unregenerate, carnal, or fleshly. The outline of biblical usage, fleshly, carnal, having the nature of flesh. Under the control of the animal appetites, governed by a mere human nature, not by the spirit of God, having its seat in the animal nature, aroused by the animal nature, human with the included idea of depravity, pertaining to the flesh, to the body, related to birth, lineage, etc. Now, this is the idea that, hey, you, you, this is someone 
to me to say someone is carnal, you're like, hey, you still have that nature of the flesh and that is being prominent. That's being more dominant in your life. I'm not seeing the spiritual. I'm seeing the carnal dominate and, and being much more prevalent. Now, I can refer to someone unregenerate. That's, I don't think it necessarily means it has to be. So sarkikos is a general term for the body. That is the physical part of man. Man has a physical and spiritual part. It is not a sin in itself to have a physical part. Jesus had a physical part and yet had no sin. However, when Adam sinned, his, uh, his the spiritual part died. And his physical part became corrupt and cursed. That is the legacy he passed on to all of his descendants. Therefore, the physical or carnal part dominates all men. So Paul is appealing to the congregation as if there were some who only had a physical part. That is, he talks as if they had no spiritual life. A man who had not been born again in the spirit part and demonstrates no spiritual life, only the physical life. He is carnal, but only carnal. He has, His carnal nature dominates his life. Carnal is the proper term to describe him. So when he says carnal, what they're saying is the carnal, you're not saved. You're lost. So brethren, I cannot speak unto you as saved. I have to speak unto you like you're lost. I have to speak unto you like you're lost people, like you're unsaved. Now I would argue if you look at the rest of that text, is that how you speak to a lost person who's carnal? Look at what Paul says in that text. That's not how you address a lost person. You're like, hey, guys, 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 listen. I can't speak to you as saved. You guys are carnal. You act like unregenerate people. So because you act like unregenerate people, you guys need to repent, change your mind, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and be saved. But no, he reasons with them. Hey, guys, I can't give you spiritual meat. I can only give you spiritual milk. Hey guys, these are the ways you're acting carnal. Let me correct it by giving you a correct understanding. Stop looking to your spiritual leaders because it is God who does the work. That's how you address Christians. That's not how you address people who are lost. If he's addressing some as like, you're lost, why is he reasoning with them like you would a Christian? The word carnal, as Paul uses it, is more than an observation. It is a declaration. He calls some of the congregation carnal, period. So when he says that he is literally declaring that some of them are carnal, that they are not saved. But the text does not read that way. He goes, I, and brethren, I could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal. And then what's the next phrase? Even as unto babes in Christ. But he's saying, no, 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 no. He's like, all you are is carnal. You're nothing else. And I, that's not the way it reads. Nothing else is said about their spirit because they have no spiritual life and are not saved. They walk by sight and not by faith. This is all they can do. The physical part of man has no spiritual motivation or power. Therefore, Paul uses carnal as speaking to an unsaved man and God applies it to the specific people of the congregation as he will. So he's like, hey, you're lost. You're lost. But that's not how the text, again, it, uh, it's so maddening. Let me read it to you again. I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unbabes in Christ. When you call someone a babe in Christ, 
Now, what some would say is he's like, hey, some of you are carnal and some of you are babes in Christ. But he's referencing them together. Hey, I can't speak unto you as spiritual, but I have to speak unto you as fleshly, even as babes in Christ. You're spiritually immature and you're fleshly. And they're saying, no, no, no. Paul is saying, hey, some of you are lost and some of you are babes in Christ. So those who are lost, I'm not going to say, he doesn't say anything to them. Hey, I guess then the rest of the words are for the babes in Christ. That there's a distinction. I, but he goes on, even after he says babes in Christ, then look what he says, for ye are yet carnal. That, that, are you, unless you're going to say babes in Christ only reverses the verse two, and then verse three and following are the lost people. But then he goes immediately in explaining to lost people that, hey, Paul or Paul are not important. It's God. Well, the lost people don't need to know that Paul or Apollos is not important. They would need to know about salvation. So it doesn't even fit if you try to break it down in this weird way. Paul's grouping them all together. I can't speak unto you as spiritual. You're carnal, you're fleshly, and you're babes in Christ. You're spiritually immature. Um, then they go to Romans 7 to look at something. And then it says, as unto babes... Uh, Now, they're saying the word babes here has no clear use for believers. In fact, it is often used in a negative way. For example, the Greek word in Romans 2.20 is tied to fools and concerns someone who has only the form of the gospel, but really possess only natural knowledge. In Galatians 4, and especially Ephesians, the same word refers to someone who has no spiritual understanding, which agrees with its use in chapter 3. So it says even babes in Christ. So they're going, they're doubling down. Carnal and babes in Christ, he's saying... I'm going to re reference to all of you like you're lost. He's that he is saying that these people are unsaved. Well, then his solution to them being unsaved is to try to explain the different. That, hey, I'm going to give you milk. I can't give you meat. And then I'm I, I, I'm going to explain to you that Paul and Apollos aren't your spiritual leaders. Why would he say, hey, guys, you're you're babes in Christ, which means you're lost. And because they're saying that the Greek word for babes in Christ means you're lost. And they're going to say that being carnal means you're lost. Well, then why wouldn't he say, hey, guys, before we can even move on, let me address address a large number of you. You're not saved. So what you guys need is salvation. He does not say that. I don't know how you turn 1 Corinthians 3 into a passage about all lost people. It doesn't read that way. Now, we're at 58 minutes. I'm not going to label this part one for now. I'm going to wait for you. So here is your homework. We're in the middle of the Sermons 2.0 app sermon challenge, and this is how we ended up here. So tomorrow when you wake up, all I want you to do is you can do two kinds of searches. You can do a search for 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and just pick a random sermon from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, just random. Make sure it at least covers verses, put 1 Corinthians 3 verses 1 through 4. Do that. Or 1 through, let me see, where would we want to stop it? 1 through 7. 
1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 7. Do a search for 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 7. Choose at random. Don't look at the church. Don't look if it's a reform, non-reform, Baptist, free will Baptist, uh, Lutheran, whatever, Presbyterian. Don't worry about it. Just pick just randomly. All right. Or your other option, type in carnal Christians and then pick random. And just tell, and then let me know what you listen to and let me know what they say. And if you find one that you think is very interesting or something that they say, give me the timestamp. Here's the link to the sermon. It starts, it starts here and ends here. Please review that. And then we'll talk about it hopefully tomorrow. This commentary makes no sense to me. There, this is their interpretation. Hey, brethren, brothers and sisters, none of you are saved. Or, let me say it this way, and I, brethren, brothers and sisters, I can't speak unto you as unto spiritual, but I can only speak to you as a bunch of unregenerate people because you're carnal and you're babes in Christ, which really means you're not saved. So I'm going to write to you as lost people. And this is what I want lost people to know. First, I want you to know that you're lost because there is envying, strife, and division. And some of you say you're of Paul and some of you say are, 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 are of Apollos. So what I want you to understand is that Paul and Apollos is nothing, but it is Christ who does everything. Now, why would lost people need to understand spiritual leaders? No, what they would need to understand is, guys, you need to be- realize that you are a sinner and you need to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be ye saved. That's the problem in this church. The problem is not spiritual immaturity. The problem is not carnality. The problem is you're lost. So why would he just not say, hey guys, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna try to correct all of these problems. He goes on to correct all of these issues in the church. Lord's Supper, meat offering. Uh, why keep writing to them? You're lost. I, I just, it doesn't make any sense. Now, of course, your theology, if you bring your theology to it, it may make sense because you're, you've got to make your theology make sense. But I'm saying just reading the text, I don't get the idea that, hey, I'm writing to you. I mean, look at how the whole thing begins. Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God. And Sothenes, our brother, unto the church of God, which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints unto everyone. And then he goes on and he says all these wonderful things about them, right? And I just don't know where all of a sudden he gets to three and go, hey, now now I'm going to write to the lost people in the church. But when I write to the lost people in the church, I'm not going to give you the gospel. <laughs> I'm going to give you instructions on how you should understand spiritual leaders. And then I guess I'm going to continue giving you instructions on how you should view us and, uh, and, uh, and then how you should do church discipline. No. Why go into all of these church-related? Like, well, only this section is for the lost people. Well, where's the gospel then related to the lost people? We're at 62 minutes, so I have to stop. What's your perspective on carnal Christians? Now, here's what I want you to do. As you think about your perspective, ask yourself, does your perspective violate the idea that we are saved by an imputed righteousness and that my salvation is not judged or determined by what I do, 
but by what Christ did. And in Christ, I'm a new creature. The old is gone. Everything is new. But in practice, I'm still very much a sinner. And if you're going to say, well, it is judged by what you do. Well, then how much carnality can be in a Christian before they're labeled not a Christian? Because he starts with the smallest things of carnality. Isn't it interesting? He does not refer to them as carnal by referring to the sins in 1 Corinthians 5 about someone having physical relations with their father's wife. He doesn't refer to um, fornication, adultery, homosexuality. doesn't refer to idolatry. He refers to the very basic things. You're fighting, you're arguing over spiritual leaders. Clearly, you're carnal and clearly you're babes in Christ. If you consider all the rest of the sins mentioned in this congregation and the rest of this, then clearly no one is saved. All right, email me, newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. There is your Sunday evening study. Hopefully, it was beneficial. Tomorrow, your assignment for the Sermons 2.0 Challenge, wake up, do a search for 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 7, find a a random sermon, or just type in carnal Christians. Don't pick this one, because it may be the newest one. Don't pick this one, okay? You've already heard it, so then pick another. But make them random, 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 okay? All right, thanks for listening. Have a great night. God bless.